XX Equals is a focused, user-centered innovation collective within Canadi Ford, and this is our podcast. Our aim is to close the gap between perception and reality when designing for women. So jump in and join us as we talk to some of the leaders, experts, and trailblazers in this space. Hello and welcome to our XX Equals podcast. I am joined today by the wonderful T Chang. T, we are so, so happy to have you here with us today. Now, in the conversations that we've had to date, I think I can honestly say that I could count on one hand the people who I've met within the design industry who I have straightaway felt is a kindred spirit. And you are 100% qualifying on that one hand. It's, um, it's amazing, I think, that the work that you've been doing and what you've been trying to um, sort of raise the profile of um, in terms of women within the field of industrial design, which quite frankly needs all the help it can get. Um, so I'm sure you probably need no introduction, but if you wouldn't mind just sharing with our listeners today a little bit about um, your journey and, and what you're doing now. Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. And likewise, I immediately felt that kindred spiritness from the first moment Zoom coffee that we had um, over the pandemic, actually. Um, So yeah, I am an industrial designer um, by trade. So on paper, it's literally the only thing that I'm qualified to do. (laughs) And I have been an industrial designer for 18, 19, going on 20 years now. Um, and I started out working in corporate and then I turned entrepreneur, uh, because I realized that there was a huge, um, area of design that was not servicing a underrepresented population such as women. And so I shifted my focus to really focus on products that support female experiences. And so I started, um, two companies in the last 12 years. Um, and the second one I'm still part of, which is Crave. And we design, you know, modern, uh, vibrators for people with vulvas. And, uh, that is what I've continued to do. And in that, I also turned activist. So I have become this industrial designer turned entrepreneur and now activist where I really try to share with folks that activism is something that anyone can be part of. Um, and it's really important if you want to start moving in the right direction. A hundred percent. And we were just talking, weren't we, T, before we started recording, uh, I think we, which we could have just carried on doing all evening, but we were talking around um, the, the stigma attached to the word activist in a similar regard to how feminism was probably seen and still is seen by some individuals um, as this sort of in-your-face troublemaker, um, you know, just not really there to listen, just there to act. And actually, activism, I think, to you and I, means nothing like that description. Tell tell us a little bit about what activism means for you. Activism, to me, simply is standing up to the status quo. If you see something and you sense an injustice, and you know that this shouldn't be, and I think all of us, when we look around at everything that happens around us, we all have a sense of this moral compass that innately we know like this shouldn't happen you know this shouldn't happen and so that is where i think activism is simply 
recognizing that you are standing up to the status quo in some way, shape or form and being loud or protesting, getting arrested. Those are, you know, I think each to their own. If that suits your float, go for it, you know, but there are plenty of folks and because I'm, I, can't, I, I don't even like rallies because I don't really like, you know, like um, uh, crowded spaces and things like that. So I find a way for me to support change in my own unique way. And so that's simply what activism is. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's really important to sort of recognize the need as well in the field that we both work in. When was it, T, that you sort of first took a look around yourself and thought, there's a, there's a problem here? Um, I think it was when, when I started working in industrial design, I constantly found myself the only female on the team, on the manufacturing floor. And I felt I was constantly just surrounded by men. And yet we were designing products that were predominantly for women, uh, such as hairbrushes. Uh, that was actually my very first job. So that's, and then I started just kind of poking around, asking around some more, like, why am I like, the only one? and I learned that it has been like this since the like seventies, um, that women in industrial design is just a rarity, even though there aren't less women going into the, uh, into studying this profession, there's actually been more and all the stats show that in schools it's 50 or 60. It's definitely, there's gender parity. It's like, it's 100% um, equal, but yet we're not getting any jobs. No, it, and, it, and actually from my understanding and asking, asking questions around this, this gender parity is the same in the UK now. And it didn't used to be, if you speak to designers who trained 20 years ago, they'll say, I was the only woman, or there was a handful of women on the course. And yet, as you say, this has changed significantly, but we're not seeing that actually come through into the workforce. We're, yeah. seeing, we're seeing either people go into sort of parallel careers or alternative careers within the same area. So project management, um, you know, working with client services or... Research. Or not, yeah, exactly. Research, insight, all of those bases. And, and also this, this strange... And this is, you know, I mean, I have huge respect. I'm not a designer. I have huge respect for designers. I've worked with them all of my professional career. But why are women always in CMF roles? I don't get this. If you start looking at, you know, C CMF, covers materials and finishes, it seems to be this, this enclave of female design within this space. And, I, you know, it may be women have a, a natural kind of propensity to, to, to that kind of that kind of work but I don't believe that's the case I believe at some point somebody says to them maybe this is a career that you should think and I don't know whether that's tutors or or colleagues or bosses or, or who that is you are 100% correct there has been a genderization of certain aspects of industrial design so CMF is one big area so so are soft goods soft goods are incredibly difficult to make you know um what we think about injection molding and how to create something soft goods it has all those complexities but because it's soft or whatever it has just kind of been genderized and like typecasted to just kind of a women's thing so that has been prevalent and going on for a very long time and in fact that has actually happened to me um when i was designing um 
uh, bicycles. Um, and you know, I was a young designer and I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have the CAD skills, uh, that a lot of the senior uh, male designers had. And I think at some point someone said to me, well, you know, maybe you should think about if you want to continue, uh, designing forms and products like, you know, like proper industrial design, or perhaps you should think about, you know, research or CMF. And so already I was kind of being nudged, like, in a very suggestive, like maybe you should go there because just because your cat skills aren't up to par. And so I think many times young women going into the workforce can be derailed by their managers just because they maybe some of their skills are not right right up there. But I completely, obviously, totally like ignored that and just went on my way, be like, no, fuck, I'm I'm gonna be a fucking industrial designer with design products. But and I got fucking good at cat and and that was the end of that. But I mean, that's it, because you were a junior. You know, you've just said that yourself. It doesn't matter if you've got ovaries or testicles. If you're a junior, you need to develop and you need to work on your skill set. And, and actually, I guess the interesting thing is that maybe that level of support for you at that point in your career just wasn't there. No. And I, and I find that after talking to so many women, they have been some they, they look back and they were like, damn, like, I think I was kind of subconsciously led and kind of pigeonholed because the, the manager would just automatically give them like a soft goods project or like give them a CMF project. And then, you know, and, and that just in a way kind of, you think that's what you're good at and that's where you keep getting assigned. And therefore that kind of leads you down a certain path versus thinking that, Hey, you have every right to design products just as men do. Um, and in fact, I, this is my personal theory. I think women have a heightened sense of aesthetics, um, than men to be perfectly honest because there's some managers who told me I think he's like I think women have some of the best aesthetic balance and proportion but they're steered away from it you know and and I think there's that's a real problem and real challenge but I mean I can um I can 100% relate to what you're describing because I moved from sort of innovation and strategy in a sort of you know more general design role into product design um 12 years ago now and it was really startling and hugely noticeable for me where I'd gone from this environment, which was more evenly balanced in terms of the gender split, to being the only woman in the room. And at the time, the business I was in was around, I think it was around 40, 44 people, 45 people. And there was, a, there was I think there was four, four or five women in the business. And I was the only woman in a delivery role. So there was like a, a receptionist, a marketing assistant, and an admin, sort of a finance assistant. Um, and and it was just, it was not even noticed. It was never commented on. It was never, um, it was never sort of remarked on that there was this kind of bizarre state of affairs that was existing. It's like you say, everybody was just institutionalized by the fact that that was what you know, what was, what was the norm, the status quo? Yeah, that was the status quo. And, and, and that has to come crashing down because what we have seen and um, in people who write about the harm that um, products that are not designed with many perspectives and many backgrounds um, that it can cause to a population. Um, I, you know, Caroline Criado Perez is my like, 
don't know, it was a very like incredible moment when I was able to connect with her and also read her book because it was the things that I was observing as a young baby designer and continually seeing that happening out in the world. Um, and then, but just no one has articulated to me with facts and data that supports what we have seen. Um, yeah, and it's often covered up. So, you know, it, it was incredible. And so knowing that now, and that is really out there, her book has been out for several years, um, I think it has really galvanized designers to do better. And I hope it can galvanize um, design firms to do better. Absolutely. And, you know, I know we're both huge fans of, of Caroline's, Caroline's book and, and her broader work. One of the things that always um, interested me in, in Invisible Women I mean, there's some incredible stats, as you say, around products, et cetera. But when she's talking about the makeup of groups, she says that for women to actually feel that they have a voice in in the in sort of work, when working in teams or in groups, that they need to be at around 75 percent of that gender split needs to be women. Even if you create a team which is 50 50 in terms of male and female, they don't um, necessarily feel that they have the confidence to have that voice. Um, which is is a really startling fact in itself. And actually, the chapter that she she talks about um, industrial design is is my favourite named chapter in the book, which is called A Sea of Dudes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, A Sea of Dudes, A Sea of Dudes. I mean, um, when you don't have those perspectives, I mean, it comes, actually, some, an incident just happened when I've been travelling. You know, like I told you, I went to the East Coast to visit my family. I was in the airport, and my hair was just like, bleh. and I, I was like, oh my gosh, I, again, I forgot, of course I forgot to bring a, a hair tie elastic, which I usually have around my wrist, but I didn't have one. And so in the airport, I'm like, okay, well, it's an airport. They always have these toiletries and things that, you know, normally, you know, you forget like toothbrushes, you know, mouthwash, blah, blah, blah. I went to four different stores, not a single elastic, not even like they're out. It was just, they never even carried it. And I was just like, in my head, I'm like, that's a diversity problem. Because if you had a woman on, I mean, do you know how much money a woman, I would have paid $10 for one of these if I could yeah. get my hair out of my face, you know, and how much you would have made a killing if you just had that. So yeah, I think that's just an example of these blind spots that we don't see because men have never been affected by this. Just like I think, if men actually could give birth, they would understand that at least in the U.S., the way in which women are treated, you know, post, you know, post delivery is atrocious, and it, it, it's it's just it's just wild how yeah when you when you, you yeah when you don't experience it yourself, you don't understand that it's a problem. No, completely. And I think you know that broader area of. Uh, oh, by the way, I do have a scrunch. I have one of these. My hair tie on my wrist as well. But that that broader area of women's health, I think that is such a huge opportunity space. And now we're starting to see some really interesting businesses and some challenger brands move into that, that area. And it feels it's that there's more, there's more energy and, and actually money as well. We're now starting to see some, some more significant, I think it's 1% of, of current sort of VCT or investor money goes into female female-led businesses but we're now starting to see uh you know that slightly change I mean not to the degree it needs to I mean how when you set up Crave how did you 
find did you actually have to go out and and find investors or or did you do did you sort of build the the business organically how did you find that um, so like i mentioned i when i did two, i started two companies so the first company i started it was it was also sexual one was i bootstrapped it by myself i literally had like five thousand dollars and because i you know i had enough experience as an industrial designer and i understood manufacturing and i speak mandarin so for me i was able to do a lot of that myself so my boot you know the, the funds i needed to get going was not that high okay but um i bootstrapped it for several years until i serendipitously bumped into the founder of Crave. He started it at that time, but he didn't have any products, but he was at least a an entrepreneur who knew that this was an important um, area to work on and it's a big business. And that if he wanted to address this market, he needed a female entrepreneur and a designer. And he just did not know that I, such a person, like myself existed, you know, cause I'm like, I was already doing that. But so that was a problem. Like I already had started my company. So basically he purchased my company to bring me on board um, to Crave. And at that point in time, Crave had a tiny bit of seed money because Michael, my co-founder um, is an serial entrepreneur. This is actually his third company. And that was enough to get us kind of going on some ideas and rough prototypes. Um, and then we sought funding. Now we never sought VC funding because that was not an area because first of all, we didn't need that much money. So if you don't need that money, don't take it. Right. So, um, so we never sought VC money. Um, we strategically went after, um, angel investors, um, people who believed in the importance of such a brand, um, who believed in the team as Michael and myself, because we have very complementary skill set, but very different skill sets. And we meet in the middle, which is design human factors. And so I think we um, uh, just made a really compelling case. And so for us, we just saw that and we were able to raise money quite easily, actually, which is a very different story from what I've heard, you know, um, with other um, women-led teams, but at the same time, also recognize that Michael's a man. You know, he definitely having him on my team, 100% helped me to get uh, funding. I believe um, because there are lots. I'm I'm not well versed in that area, and uh, also because he had the reputation, the rapport from his previous company. So that definitely 100% helped. Um, you know, in us finding, yeah getting getting funding but we we actually I think total raised like 3.6 million and we did a series a and series b and then and i know 3.6 million is super tiny in the face of like what happens in silicon valley it's like oh did you miss a zero is it 36 like no no no, we did that but we were, were able to become profitable really quickly and so just hadn't need needed to raise more money yeah and i think you you made a really good point uh, when that when you were talking about raising as well and so raise you raise what you need don't raise more than you need because you know there will be there will be consequences for all of the money that that you raise so i think um it's it's really fascinating hearing that story and, and actually very 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 you know kind of serendipitous for the skill sets to because i mean even if you look at yourself t to to be able to design the products understand the manufacturing and speak mandarin i mean there's probably not that many people who can actually answer just those, you know, those points in themselves. So I think he was very lucky to find you. Yeah, it, it literally, we, we were standing in a taxi line in a really skivvy, sketchy adult toy industry show. Like, 
God, like I don't, oh, it, it just was really, really sketchy. And then, you know, being a young woman and, you know, like any guy is always trying to hit on, it's just, it's just obviously my guards were way up. And I remember he saw my name tag because I already had products out on the market because my first company, Incognito, is where I experimented with the idea of sex toys and jewelry. And that went really well. And he saw that product uh, a year prior and like just ha we happen to be standing next to each other in a taxi line. And so that started a conversation because he wasn't creepy. He wasn't, you know, whatever. And then, but it was very extremely serendipitous. And you know, yeah, you, you work really hard, but sometimes you also really need luck. You really need luck. I was chatting to a female founder who we're working with at the moment, who um, has a really brilliant product that, that she's, she's looking for seed money for at the moment. And she was telling me that, Two of the meetings that she had a couple of weeks ago, they both asked her her plans as to when she was, if she was going to get pregnant. In the no. Next few years. Oh yeah. my god! <laughs> I can't even. And this is, you know, this is happening now. This was a few weeks ago. Yeah. So, and actually, even you know, listening to her stories of of fundraising, just the amount of time because it's a it's a menstrual uh, menstrual device. Because of the amount of time um, it takes to actually explain the what the concept actually is, because her investors are male. Whereas if, if somebody was pitching something to us, then we go, it would take 30 seconds probably, then you go, okay, got it. But they just don't understand anything that sits within that field. So there's there's so many barriers that are, you know, are still there and still omnipresent for all of the potential female founders out there yeah the, the, when when it comes to experiences that they have no idea about um i remember a female founder um she founded next nixit the menstrual cup um she told me she had to explain to her husband why she was because she was a lawyer you know like that's her profession and she realized menstruation was obviously a huge area and needed you know problems and products to solve um, and her husband was just very puzzled as to why, why are you doing this? I mean, aren't there already products out there, you know? And she reframed the, the experience for him, which I thought was really interesting. She goes, when you put in a tampon, you have about two to three hours before it's like a time clock in your head. You're like, oh, I have to change it. And depending on the flow. All right. And that's quite stressful on top of a, you know, a busy woman, you have all these things, you have the kids, you have whatever you have work. And and, and it's just, it's very uncomfortable. It's like you have this ticking time bomb that's ticking down. And, and he was like, oh, I never thought about that. So he was like, so you have to change it? She's like, yes, I have to change it every hour, you know, every whatever, depending on my flow. And I don't, you know, and, and it, these things by, I guess, changing, like reframing it to somebody who doesn't experience it, it helped him to understand. It's like, oh, well, that really sucks. <laughs> now <laughs> it's nice to have a menstrual cup that you can leave in for 12 hours you know and not worry about it so it's quite it would be quite a long list wouldn't it if you had to write down everything that's about being a woman when it comes to you know the health challenges and, and you know you've already mentioned childbirth etc but I think clearly from the level of activity in this space um there's there's some brilliant new thoughts or services and products that are coming out what other sectors do you think are really ripe for reinvention? I think it's any space that's taboo. I mean, death is a massive one. 
we are all going there. All right. But we don't talk about it and therefore resulting in an experience that is not only traumatic for your loved ones already, you know, when you pass away, but the financial trauma of having to deal with funerals and whatnot, it's just all these arrangements because we just don't want to talk about it, you know, but we're all inevitably going there, you know, so let's, let's, let's die better. Let's leave the world better, you know, and be less stressful for our, our, our friends and family, you know, anyway, so death, money, you know, sex obviously is a big one, but I just think so many areas of, um, um, taboo places that's like really ripe for just rethinking. Yeah. It is, it is fascinating actually, because again, death is, I've moved house recently, which is, I hadn't done for 12 years and actually I had forgotten how to move house. And in the same way, because you forget, because there's, it's a really convoluted process here in the UK, the whole kind of actually the, the purchasing, and it's it's just very long-winded and, and the whole thing needs redesigning. And in the same way, until you've actually done it, you know, in the same way, until you've managed the process of, of someone's death who's close to you, you don't have a scooby as to where you're going to start with this. You, yeah. you have no understanding and there's no kind of, you know, beginner's guide to death that's, that's you know, there you can pick up and just say, right, this is what I have to do. There's now like, you know, just like any movement, like, you know, what we're trying to do is that it starts with a conversation. It starts with normalizing that. And that's one of the, one of the key things I learned in, in, in when I was building Crave um, in that how my product has help to create social impact in that because my product was so beautiful, people were wearing it out and therefore starting conversations with people that they normally would not have talked about. And then they were able to have a, a, a helpful conversation or fun or, you know, a, you know, conversation about something that otherwise it was the on-ramp to talking about that is very difficult. So that, um, anyway, that, that is kind of like, it starts with normalizing that conversation. So if you had, um, there are starting to be services and companies where they're trying to make, you know, death almost like turbo tax, like easier. <laughs> here's some things you can fill out, you know, here's your will, you know, so, which is, which is really, really positive. And this is a great Ted talk by BJ Miller. Oh, it is amazing. So I highly recommend that Ted talk BJ Miller on death. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to watch that one. But I think sex, is a fascinating, fascinating sector and area as well because what we are now seeing, and I think you were ahead of your time when you uh, when you started Crave and and the products that you were developing. But what we are seeing now is that desire to break the stigma and to actually really focus on on pleasure because that's the that's the other bit that's always been there's been a huge taboo around is female pleasure, isn't it? And actually how that. <laughs> It sounds so integral to the whole area of sex, but it, it, it's actually been almost the subgenre that's been largely ignored. Yeah, and it starts centuries and centuries back in the lack of education and the knowledge around female anatomy. Because one of the core problems, and this is something that you know we are hopefully you know can address, is that for the longest time, because this is not just a pleasure thing; it's also a medical thing, where we have decided that long time ago, like Aristotle or whatever, they decided that women's body, we were basically little men. And so when you have that lens, when it comes to the anatomy, there are going to be so many things 
that you miss and you get wrong because we are not little men. We are female body. We have a female anatomy that's unique. That's just as valid as a male body. And so from that stemmed a lot of um, inaccuracies and agenda about hiding women's pleasure and women's clitoris. We, like, we didn't even know what it was for a very long time. Um, and in fact, it wasn't even fully documented. Like we knew what it was, like the clitoris was there, but we didn't know the actual full body documentation of what a clitoris even looked like until 1998, for fuck's sake, 1998. You know, we put a man on the moon we did, I like, it just baffles my mind. And so that from that lack of knowledge that continues perpetuate in when we don't talk about sex and pleasure, it, it harms, you know, the, the public public, because we then don't know what to do, um, you know, with ourselves when we start to have sexual encounters very young and things like that. So, yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I think the whole area is fascinating and I'm really excited to kind of see how inclusivity is starting to play more of a role and there's we're seeing an encouragement for exploration as well and to actually you know be more enlightened and be more curious about our bodies and and our pleasure which is you know quite frankly a long time in coming and a long long time overdue yeah and it took like female you know the woman who documented the the, the fully documented is a is a woman because yeah, I mean, and, and people say, like, why didn't women do this? Well, because women weren't even allowed to attend schools a long time ago. OK, don't forget that we didn't even have the right to vote, you know. And so um, now that we are in position of power where we can advocate for ourselves and others, um, this is why I think activism is so important, um, is that we all can find our own ways of activating other people and and standing up to the status quo in your own way. You do not have to subscribe to the political activism of, you know, violence or rally and things like that, but we all can make a difference because it's it's ordinary folks like you and I. And I think that's really key and central to the to the point because we're we're seeing the same number as we've talked about of, of graduates, female and male come in. And yet conversations I've had with various um, individuals who are working in design or recruiting into design or managing in design, we're, we're just not seeing those numbers translate. And I mean, I've got a number of theories as to why that is, but I'd be really interested to hear your views on it. Well, one of the views that it just makes me quite angry and sad is that when people say, oh, let's recruit for diversity. Well, then one of the arguments have always been well, we don't want to, um, you know, lower the quality of work, you know, or the qualifications. And it's like, what are you talking about? Because that is actually a tool of supremacy that we tell ourselves because they, it's almost like that the, um, Having diversity does not reduce the quality of work. In fact, it will enhance the quality of work because you can solve a problem from multiple angles. But what happens is, is that there is this desire to keep the status quo because they're not used to working with people of color. They're not used to working with women. And they just think that, oh, the reason they're not up here with us is because they're not as capable. So if we bring them in here, we have to lower our standards, which is complete horseshit, okay? And and also, the other thing that's horseshit is also meritocracy. I mean, I can go on about that, but not all the people who are at the top deserve to be at the top, but they like to tell themselves they're at the top, you know? But but ultimately, it, it is 
and I've heard recruiters say this, that they think, um, oh, by opening up diversity, you're lowering standard. That is a tool of white supremacy. We cannot, we cannot subscribe to that. And someone says that, you need to push back because there are plenty of diverse talent. It's just, they're not comfortable working with them. They're not sure how to do that. And then that is something they use to um, tell themselves it's all right to exclude people. That's Absolutely. my And I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's total, total bullshit. Because in, the, in our business, we have actively tried to broaden our, our, our pool in terms of the way we're recruiting, the language that we're using around recruiting, all of the sort of the, the quite basic elements. And our team now is up to 40% women, 60, 60% male. Our management team is 50-50. Our board's representative of our executives is 50-50. So it's, and, and I'm still embarrassed that we are not there yet in terms of the, the main body of our team. And I, I, I did an exercise the other day, <laughs> it was a few months ago in lockdown, because I was, I was quite bored and there wasn't much else to do. And I looked at some of our key competitors. I looked at our 10 key competitors. And um, I looked on, we have companies house here, which lists all the directors of the company. And there was 52 directors across the 10 competitors, of which four were female, of which two were married to male directors. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that they have a valid contribution, but I'm just saying, you know, it's, it might, they're, they're, they may have taken in a slightly different route. Um, so the representation is just not there. And ultimately, I think a lot of it comes down to this argument that you're, you're talking about where people, they just, I don't know if they don't want to be challenged or, or they think that it will, it will change the dynamic. Or, ultimately, if you're, de- if you're designing a diverse product, you need a team that actually represents that diversity or can mirror the product that's being developed. Yeah. And you need, you need to be able to recruit on potential and understand that story, you know, back to sort of when, when you started out and you're designing bikes and actually say, you need to recruit on potential and say, T, you know, we've got this junior, T, she's fantastic. So we're going to invest, we're going to develop and we're going to train her and, and not just look for the easy route in terms of experience every time. Yeah. And also in within hiring, there has been a deeply coded culture that, oh, they're not a culture fit. All of those things that we now know is code for exclusionary acts of like keeping just unfortunately white people, men, you know, whatever at the top. And then, you know, like not letting others in because we're not comfortable with that. We're keeping a bro culture because that's what that is. And, and I think these things, we need to do away with that because there are still an older generation that's preaching culture fit and things like that. Whereas we now know it is a tool to uphold a systemic way of excluding folks out of companies and work. And T, what what advice would you give to female designers who are graduating now in terms of looking for their first role? What what questions should they be asking at interview? I what questions should they be? I mean, I think one, if I was interviewing, I would look around and see um, you know, who would I be immediately working with? And then if it is all men, because unfortunately, you know, we, we in order to create change, you have to be some of the early uncomfortable pioneers and to be in that space. And you can ask yourself, do I want to sign up to be the only female in this all male team? If you're up for it, go for it. Cause I was up for it, you know, and sure it wasn't great, but like, even you're in a, 
diverse team, things cannot be great. You know what I mean? But first evaluate whether or not you're up for it and then, you know, make that decision and just be mindful of that diversity. Um, and the other thing is that I would, as you enter the workforce, know that your opinion as a female and from whatever background you have, your opinion is just as valid as that mediocre white dude that is sitting there. All right. Who's always going to share his opinion because they feel they can take up space. And we know there's so many studies that have shown that women, we don't feel like we can take up space, you know, and as a young designer, you're even less likely to want to share your opinions. And that is, um, that is a miss. And I would, you know, tell young designers to not be dismissive of your opinions and not be intimidated when you are the only female on a team, because your opinion is just as valid as anyone else's. I think ultimately it's been really important to you that individuals see role models and that there's a responsibility, I think, that sits sits with the seniority, which you embrace entirely and just putting yourself out there because whilst I, you know, I you will always find me on my soapbox talking about this, and I will do for as long as I'm active in the industry, but I'm not a designer and I'm, I have different challenges because equally there's there's no senior women running running these businesses, but I can't be a role model for young designers because they they can't relate to the route that I've taken in. Whereas the route that you are you have taken, it's it's the route that they aspire towards, and so it's hugely important that that you are so vocal. But ultimately, as well, you have to develop quite a thick skin, don't you? Because for all of the reasons that we've talked about and all of the negative reactions that, that go alongside that. I think any woman who is worth her salt, who has gone through trials and tribulations of just working and getting to their 40s, they all have thick skin, you know? And even if they don't have thick skin, they just don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> they just can't Definitely. Run, you know? And, and it... I think, though, I have to say you have to give yourself and I need to say that you represent an activism within corporate thinking and corporate management in the C-suite that we're not seeing, you know. And so your activism is so crucial in making space, not only, you know, as a light for designers of showing how a workplace can be more diverse and successful, but also your presence and what you talk about can influence so many other CEOs in how they think about their culture. And I know it can seem very, you know, it's, a, it's, it's like, oh my God, you know, but at the same time, if you're not too tired, you're up for it. Like what you're doing is so, so just as crucial as what we're doing. Because without businesses, successful businesses, designers can't exist, you know? And so we need folks like you who really understand why this is so important to the business. Thank you, T. Uh, at times, it feels a little bit like banging your head against a brick wall, which I'm sure you can 100% relate to. It's really appreciated, and it means the world coming from, from you as well. I think, um, I think you know, we are, we are in the stalemate, it almost feels like, in the UK, where... There's this, there's this sort of, there's this challenge, isn't there, around the fact that every year on International Women's Day, which is probably my least favourite day of the year, then we see all these businesses, you know, showcasing all of these these fantastic women that work in the team, but 
but they're never the senior management or they're so rarely, rarely the senior management. They're the younger members of the team. And, you know, I'm not belittling their contribution in any shape or form, but we need to see that systemic change in terms of, of actually bringing those women through on the ranks and, and how we can actually support those that career progression for women in design in the UK and in the US as well, particularly when yeah. the odds are stacked against them. And I hope that maybe someone who's listening, who is in a power, in a position who is able to hire, take a chance on someone that is completely different than you, you know, someone who is maybe female, person of color, whatever, but take that chance because I feel like because we are very cognizant as women, as a person, you know, I'm a person of color that like we try really hard because we know these opportunities are not just given. We are even more grateful for those experiences. And I think just put those, you know, lifelines out there. Just be like, here, I want to take a chance on you. Like, because I feel you have the potential. You would be surprised what you get back because so many successful people of color when you hear their stories, it's like someone took a chance on me. Yeah. And I think you also need to make sure that as a as a manager, or as an employer, that you're creating the right environments for those people to thrive. Yes. You need to make sure that there's a, a, a culture of respect that runs through the business. Yeah. And you need to, oper- as a management team, you need to operate zero tolerance for people who, who veer away from that. I, I think that's hugely, hugely important. I wish I could work for you, to be perfectly honest. But I have never been in a company that embraced design, embraced diversity, and with a CEO that I'm just like, damn, she's badass, you know? And I want to learn from her. And I just, it's like, yeah, let's keep in touch, you know, just in case. Whatever happens, right. yeah. <laughs> I think we could we could set up some seriously impressive business together, too. <laughs> I think so. I hope, I hope no. I hope no one I'm working with is is currently listening to this. <laughs> but just just tell me. I'm going to ask one last question because otherwise I could just keep going for a very long time. So tell me, all of these experiences. What have you learned about yourself throughout all of this? And I think we talked. I remember we talked about this the first time we spoke. And I think. My, I would say my my kind of secret is I just give so much less of a fuck than I used to. And I used to keep myself awake at night worrying what other people thought of me. And now it's like, take it or leave it. <laughs> this is how it is, you know? So what, what have you learned about yourself throughout all of this? Oh, I mean, I love getting older. I love getting older. I think being in my 40s is is incredible because I no longer want people to like me. I don't, I don't know how, I know this sounds really weird. It's like, because I think we're ingrained with like, we should all get along. We should all, you know, whatever, but I, I care less about, Oh, uh, they like me or they do that. No, no. I just respect me for what I do. I mean, people don't even have to like you, but at least they respect you, you know? And so like you, I've, I give a lot less fucks about <laughs> about what other people think because the most important opinion is your own opinion of yourself of what you're doing. So that is what I try to stick to is that um, and also, but also the also the close friends whose opinions that you really value, you know, because um, they are in your corner to help support you through. Because you know, it's not easy. It's not easy doing any of these things. And I learned that um, activism, you know, because 
you feel so passionate about this, you can get emotionally riled up and deplete yourself. And one of the things I've learned um, is knowing how to balance that is that yes, this is, this is infuriating. This is injust, this is injustice, you know, but like, it's not going to do anyone any good if I just like blow up and burn out and then whatever it's, you got to pace yourself. Take those days. I now take those days when my body's telling me like, look, you have had it. (laughs) Um, You need to just take it easy. And I do. And I practice a lot more self-care than I did when I was younger because I was just like so driven to prove myself. And like, I didn't want to have a moment of weakness, but I realized like having those days off and recharge is just as important as putting the effort in moving things forward. I think that's so true. It's not big or clever, even though it might be perceived as such, particularly in the design world 10, 20 years ago to be, you know, there with a sleeping bag under your desk. And we all know our best ideas do not happen after we've been sat for 12 hours at our desk. But I think this point about emotion is is really interesting as well, because you will find, or I certainly have, is that when I get passionate or start talking about something passionately, you will find that some individuals will label, you'll say, you're being very emotional about this, like that's a bad thing. And ultimately, also, you get to the point where you can own that emotion. You say, I'm emotional about this because I really, really care. And it's hugely important to me. And I want to create a more equitable future. And if you're not on board with that, then that's up to you. But this is this is what I feel passionate about. Yeah. So, I, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the emotion thing, I feel like it's almost something that corporate America has taught you so that they can brainwash you into being a cog. Just do it. Don't don't have emotions. Don't think about your morals. Don't think about all those things. Just, we just want you to be a cog in the system. And, and that's how you'll be a good little worker and we'll reward you for that. And I think that is horseshit because when you have that emotion, that means your body is telling you, hey, this is important. Maybe you should pay attention to that because that's something that does not sitting right with you. And and that is something worth exploring. So yeah, fuck it with all that emotional bullshit. It's good to um, pay attention to that, but know that you need to be able to channel it in the right way that's productive. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think just own it, you know? I mean, you have different types of people in businesses. You will have the cogs, but equally, you have the, the sparky people, the entrepreneurs, the challenges. And we all need to get comfortable with that. And we all need to embrace that. And we need to understand that actually that makes the world a better place and it makes companies better places and it makes them more interesting and more vibrant to work in. So bring it on, I say. Yeah, I'm there with you. I'm standing next to you, like, rah, ready to go. (laughs) T, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I know that um, this will not be the last conversation that we'll be having on this topic. Thank you so much for joining us today. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, what are the best channels for, for them to, to speak to you on Instagram? Uh, they can find me on my website, designer, T-I, one word, dot com, And you'll have all my social links there. Yes, it's the same for TikTok, for Instagram, for uh, Twitter, et cetera. Um, yeah, totally reach out to me. But I think a, a place I think that's even better is actually on my design activism clubhouse. So if you're in clubhouse, because now they've opened up to both, you know, um, Android folks, uh, finally, uh, that anyone can join, just look up design activism and follow the club. And I'll add you as a member, because this is where we're actually having some, some really rich conversations that you can't always have on Twitter because people 
don't hear your voice. And the problems that we're trying to solve is not just black and white, it's very gray. And so it requires some some nuanced talking and thinking and back and forth. And I just, and this is a place where people can have that discourse. So please join my design activism clubhouse. All right, you heard it here. I'm going to go and join that now, Steve. And I'm going to have you on as a guest. So. <laughs> I'll look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, ciao. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening, please rate, review, and subscribe. And keep your eyes peeled for our next episode. 